Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our usual Thursday slot this week, little after 10 a.m., February 22nd. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. Today we are joined by Stephanie Armour, The Wall Street Journal. Hi, good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. And my colleague, Julie Appleby of Kaiser Health News. Hello. So Congress is out of town this week, thankfully not too much news, but we did finally see the regulation that we health wonks have been waiting for since, what, December? I think people thought it would come out right before Christmas. Um, Julie, explain for us how the rules around short-term health insurance policies are about to change. Okay, thank you. Um, Let's take a slight step back just to say what are short-term plans. And basically, these are health insurance plans that were meant to kind of cover a gap, like between jobs or maybe you just got out of school, that kind of thing. So they last a short period of time. And we've always had these, right? We've always had these. They existed before the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they're being looked at now because premiums are going up in the Affordable Care Act, and people are looking to these to have lower premiums, and they do have lower premiums. But the reason they're less expensive is because they don't cover all the benefits necessarily that an Affordable Care Act plan would do, and they ask you a bunch of health questions. So they can reject people outright if they've got health problems, or they can say, we're not going to cover that particular health problem during this period. The Obama administration uh, limited them to uh, three months, basically 90 days, because they didn't want people relying on these when they could actually go into the Affordable Care Act marketplace and get a plan that was more comprehensive. This new order that came out on Tuesday said that these plans, it's a proposed rule, and these plans could be sold for up to 12 months. Now, Some of the concerns are that this is going to pull younger and healthier people out of the Affordable Care Act marketplace and into these plans. And even the government's proposed rule said that maybe 100,000 to 200,000 people would shift out of an Affordable Care Act plan into one of these short-term plans. And that would affect the marketplace. It would cause premiums to go up in the Affordable Care Act marketplace, the proposed rule said. And and then that, in turn, means that the government outlays for subsidies would also go up. So there's a lot going on with these short-term plans. The the idea from the administration's point of view, they talked a lot about this in a press call, is that this will give people more choice. This will give some folks some options. There's a lot of folks out there who can't afford Affordable Care Act policy right now. They don't get a subsidy. The premiums have gone up. In many cases, they're, they're very, very expensive, and folks can't afford it. So this is an option, but it's not an option for everybody because you can't get one if you're not healthy. So there's a little bit of a conundrum there. So it does offer some people more choice. The trade-off for some could be lower premiums for some people in the middle class who don't get a subsidy. But on the other hand, it could raise premiums for folks who stay in that Affordable Care Act marketplace. And if you're healthy now and you buy one of these policies and you get sick, you might not be covered. Right. They are not guaranteed renewable. So you have to reapply. And so you'd have to answer those medical questions again. And if you've gotten sick, They don't have to cover that condition, and they don't actually have to take you. The idea is that then people would join an Affordable Care Act plan, but if premiums keep going up in that marketplace and they're sick and they go to buy one, they may find that they were really unable to afford them in in the future years, and and then they wouldn't have a choice. If you talk to consumer advocates, there's another concern about these Mm -hmm. plans, which are that they've been around for a while. We kind of know how they've operated historically, and they have a history of 
basically not paying for people's medical claims. So, you know, you might, I think there's a concern you might buy the plan and develop an illness and that the insurer might make a determination that that illness was, in fact, a pre-existing condition. Even though you filled out the questionnaire and answered all of the questions and maybe mm-hmm. submitted medical records or whatever else, certain kinds of conditions they may determine to have been pre-existing. And there was some good reporting in Bloomberg and also uh, by my colleague Reed Abelson at the time, sort of looking back at some examples of these short-term plans that had essentially uh, just decided not to cover people's care after they had heart surgery or a cancer diagnosis or, and left them on the hook for quite a lot of bills. Right. That's what we saw in the the individual marketplace before the Affordable Care Act, right? This is called rescission, where insurers would go back and they would look at the application people filled out and perhaps find a place where they didn't say, oh, I went to the doctor for XYZ condition five years ago. And they could use that to say, well, you know what? You weren't completely honest with us. We're going to cancel this policy retroactively. Any bills you've racked up, we're not going to cover. So that that is one concern. And another thing, you've got to read the fine print on these plans. I, I wrote a story about them a while back. Um, some insurers this year were packaging together packages of 90-day plans. So they'd kind of last a whole year. But if you read the fine print, some of them didn't cover things like chronic pain, congenital conditions, and immunodeficiency disorders. So you might buy one of these policies and find out that your condition isn't actually covered at all. So that's another concern that folks had with with these policies. What I, what I also think is really interesting about this is um, what you said, Julie, in terms of it being kind of a return to the pre-ACA market. And I think if you step back and look at this in total of what the Trump administration is doing, you see that this is really a significant part of their chiseling away of the ACA and creating sort of this new dynamic. And you see states responding very differently. You see some states that are encouraging and welcoming this. And you see some states like Washington State, Hawaii, that want to regulate these short-term plans so that they can't be part of the marketplace. Right. We're going to see more of that. Some states already, for example, um, require these plans to meet all the ACA rules. That would be New York and New Jersey and some states like that. So we may see more of that kind of activity from some of the blue states may try to restrict them, and some of the red states may not. Well, Stephanie, I mean, this is actually the exact question I was about to ask you. You know, they, and you were at the sort of the, the bigger press conference that they had on Tuesday talking a lot about this, about how, you know, people have been priced out, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but how much of this is part of the administration's desire to get more people covered? And how much is part of the administration's desire to undercut the Affordable Care Act? I think that they, from their perspective, see this as both. Um, I think that they they are very concerned about the higher premiums on the individual market when you look at the midterm election coming up. And I think that's one of the reasons perhaps that they want to get the short-term rule very quickly because this could potentially um, go into effect before some of the, the midterm votes come up. But I also think that this is really part of a very broad strategy that the Trump administration has been embarking on with um, because the Republicans in Congress failed to repeal the law. They're seeing that they can really do a lot of the same thing through regulatory action, um, whether it be Medicaid work requirements that will limit coverage or whether it be the short-term health plans, um, the individual mandate, obviously, Congress tackled. And so when you step back, it's really interesting. It's like a bowling alley and you have these pins, but the bowling ball hasn't hit yet. Like this stuff is coming. So yes, the ACA is there, but it's its, it's, its framework and remnants of it and parts of it are still going to remain, obviously. Um, but you see the taxes being delayed. You see so much going on that I don't think the average person is paying attention to. And it's going to have really big repercussions at the health policy landscape as we go forward. 
Oh, plus, That's also okay. a way in which I think this policy of ha- of allowing these short-term plans that don't have to follow the Affordable Care Act's rules that can last for essentially an entire year and that maybe, it's a little unclear in the current proposal, could be renewed year after year, they sort of uh, set up some of the same conditions that the Republican bills would have, the congressional bills. So there was a you know big debate about uh, an amendment from Ted Cruz and Mike Lee uh, about sort of trying to set up kind of parallel markets that if uh, there was an insurance market that covered all the Affordable Care Act stuff and, uh, you know, covered people with pre-existing conditions, maybe it would be okay to also have a different market that was sort of more freewheeling. This is a little bit like that. These are plans that you really can only get access to if you're healthy, uh, that may not that are not going to be very useful if you have certain kinds of health conditions because they may not cover them, but they are cheaper. And I think it is, you know, we have seen Republicans interested in having these two kinds of markets potentially existing side by side so they can avoid the criticism of doing away with some of the more popular parts of Obamacare, the requirement that people be covered regardless of pre-existing conditions, while at the same time having this kind of parallel, more free market system on the side that does, in fact, exclude people and and, and will cause the more comprehensive plans to get more expensive. I would say the irony here is that this ends up costing the federal government more money because as healthier people leave the market, leave the, the Affordable Care Act markets to buy these short-term plans that leave sicker people behind, the premiums will go up. But in this case, there's the premium subsidy. So if you're getting help, um, you won't pay any more, but the government will, which we've already seen. Um, a lot uh, more, the, wasn't it? Like yeah. 168 million um I can't remember. That was the high. It was ninety-six million to one hundred sixty-eight million that it could cause um, annually, subsidies right? to go up annually. It looked yeah. like it, right? Yeah. But that was based on an estimate that only one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand right. right. people currently in the Obamacare compliant individual market would switch to. Which this is new remember market. about at seventeen, eighteen million people. So. Um, that's a really low it's estimate. Really low I think number. it's. I think it is true that probably some people who will buy these short-term plans, if they if the rule gets finalized, will be people who are currently uninsured, who just are not interested in the current offerings. But I think it is also reasonable to expect that some percentage of people who are buying this relatively expensive insurance and who are relatively healthy and can pass the underwriting might choose to switch. And so, you know, I was talking to some experts this week about whether that estimate of one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand people was credible and. The sort of overwhelming response I got from people is that number is too low. I don't know exactly how much it is too low, but there wasn't a whole lot of detail and rigor about how HHS had arrived at that estimate. And, you know, as Julie said, you know, the the market of people who are unsubsidized in the Obamacare compliant uh, insurance market is, is much larger than that. And so if you imagine some percentage of them leave, it could actually have a bigger budget impact than even what's been estimated. All right. Well, before we leave this, I want to talk a little bit about Idaho again. We've talked for the last two weeks about how Idaho wants to basically flout the ACA by uh, letting insurers offer plans that directly contravene key elements of the health law, which sounds a lot like what we were just talking about with the short-term plan. So, Julie, how is what Idaho wants to do different from these short-term plans? Well, these are not short-term plans. They're they're closer to major medical. That but, Idaho's talking about. That Idaho's talking about. But they will... Um, allow insurers to ask medical questions. They will allow insurers to change the rates for folks based on their health conditions. So let's say you're really healthy, you might get a rate that's 50% below the standard if, rate. If they've had a gap in coverage, right? There's um, some... No, that's the pre-existing condition thing. They, they, they can adjust rates, but yeah, they, and they can, and it's, but if you're sick, they can charge you 50% more. But they can also exclude coverage of pre-existing conditions, but only if 
the person had been uncovered for 63 days. So those things right there differ from the Affordable Care Act in pretty big ways because the Affordable Care Act cannot charge people more because they're sick and cannot exclude pre-existing conditions. But Idaho sees this as an opportunity to, they say, stabilize their market. They think that these plans are going to be less expensive. It'll pull in some younger and healthier folks who, who are sitting out the market right now because it's expensive. They're arguing that it would help stabilize the market. And they've done one key interesting sort of policy wonky thing, right? They, they're combining the risk pools, so to speak. So uh, an insurer that offers these types of policies also needs to offer an exchange type policy, and then they need to combine the claims when they're setting rates. It's just it's a wonky way to say they're hoping that this won't pull younger and healthy people out and cause rates to go up in one part of the market and not another. So Because they're all going to be together. Because they're all going to be together. Unlike, unlike it, right. what we were just unlike talking about. Unlike what we were about. just talking about with the short-term plans. So it'll be very interesting to see. But, but the bigger question in Idaho is, can the state do this? Because they're basically saying, we're going to allow insurers to ignore parts of federal law and offer these types of plans. And so then that that raises the whole question of, well, who would step in? I don't see HHS moving very quickly on this. I I mean, the conversations we've had with um, the HHS Secretary Alex Azar make it very clear that he's kind of taking this wait and see. He's like, they haven't submitted a waiver. All I have are the media reports. Um, yes, he said he he can't act on a basis of media reports. Right. This is but his no favorite line that, about this. There's no indication that Idaho is going to submit and exactly. ask for a waiver. Either. Exactly. So, so I think also, I mean, he, like, he could pick up the phone and call the governor of Idaho. <laughs> well, yes, he could. <laughs> could get some independent Although, verification of the media reports. I was I was suggesting earlier today <laughs> that possible. if this had been the Obama administration, a a a strongly worded letter would have come out long since. Oh I yes, mean, they would have. There would have been a reminder letter that that these are not things that the state can can actually do on its own. Um, and these are not parts of the Affordable Care Act that are, quote unquote, waivable. Right. And when uh, Idaho first said they were going to do this, the question was, will any insurers step forward to do it? Because the insurers are at some risk here, too. There's some pretty significant, significant. penalties. The insurers for, are at all the risk. The state's right, not at risk. Right. But we saw an insurer, the Idaho Blues Plan, step forward with what they're calling their Freedom Blue Plans. They've got five different plans. These plans are going to cover a lot of what the ACA covers, right? They cover most of the essential health benefits, but they're not going to cover pediatric vision and dental, but they are going to adjust rates based on age and some of these other things. One of their plans is going to cover maternity. The others are not. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Will they get approval in Idaho? Will they be able to sell them? Will there be a court case? Will will the federal government... Oh, yeah, they'll definitely... Yeah. (laughs) The question is, I think... I mean, my guess is that if they get approved, that HHS would step in, but mm-hmm. I think Secretary Azar doesn't want to do anything until and unless he absolutely has to. I also wonder if there's some thinking that the short-term health plan proposed rule may provide an out or some kind of way to finagle things um, with the Idaho plan. I'm not saying it will, but I, I think that... Well, that, that's that's the big question. Right, if, right. If, Idaho, if that's, this is what Idaho wants to do, why doesn't it wait till the short-term rule comes into effect and, and just do short-term plans? If, yeah, tell, tell these plans they can sell them for 364 days. Right. Mm-hmm. Or does, that was, does what Idaho really want to do is help push the ACA to crumble. I mean, that's the question is sort of what that and that is on the state, not on the insurers. Is the state is the state's goal here to to actually undermine the the health law? Or is it it, it maybe the opposite, right? It may be that Idaho wants to provide these kind of uh, 
different options in the insurance market, but do this weird risk pool thing, right? So I, I think that there are some reasons to be skeptical that that can be easily achieved on a technical basis. But, you know, as Julie said, they're trying to figure out a way to have these different kinds of plans in the market without totally disrupting the the Obamacare compliant individual market. And that is different than the short term role. And perhaps that's one of their motivations is they sort of want to have both things. All right. Well, I want to change gears for a minute, and then we're going to come back to, to something along those lines. Um, obviously, the other big news of the last couple of weeks are guns and public health, uh, specifically the continuing ban on gun injury research at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A little history here. In 1996, Congress, at the behest of the National Rifle Association, uh, banned the Centers for Disease Control's Injury Prevention Center from using any of its funding to, quote, advocate or promote gun control. Uh, and it cut the CDC's budget that year by uh, $2.6 million, which which was exactly the amount CDC had been spending on gun-related research. Um, While that would have seemed to continue to allow ongoing research on the relationships between guns and injuries, it basically effectively shut down the researchers who were doing it at the time because CDC was afraid of losing still more money. So there was basically no more gun research. Uh, In 2013, after the Sandy Hook shooting, President Obama issued an executive order calling for government-funded research on, quote, the causes of gun violence and ways to prevent it. But Congress never funded the research, and in fact, the original Original language passed in 1996 is not only still in the HHS funding bill, uh, it has over the years been expanded to cover other agencies uh, at HHS in addition to the CDC, notably the National Institutes of Health. So now we have another school shooting, another run at this. Um, Is anything likely to change this time in a way that it didn't before? Uh, The new HHS secretary has certainly suggested or indicated that the research would go forward. And, you know, today you did see um, President Donald Trump Uh, taking some what may be surprising stands in terms of um, talking about doing some, I don't know if it would be technically gun control measures, but things that some Democrats have definitely wanted. So I think it's yet to be seen. I know that there's strong interest among the CDC in doing some more of this research again, but it's, it's obviously such a fraught topic that it was interesting sort of going back and looking at this every time I was just did a quick Google search and every time there was a big shooting, there was another story about, hey, the government's not not funding research into this. And then we all say, why did this happen? And the answer is, we don't know because we're not funding the research into this. I think that there's a little bit too much made of this. So certainly, you know, people who want to better understand the causes of and of gun violence and the solutions to them, I'm sure, would welcome all the research that's available and government funding for that research and government scientists doing that research. And I do think the government has a certain credibility with the public. You know, when the CDC says, here is what we think, uh, you know, it, it may be more broadly accepted than similar findings from other sources. But it's not like there is no research that is going into public health uh, efforts around guns. I mean, there is quite a robust academic debate and quite a lot of research that is happening, you know, and a lot of it is looking at um, state laws. So there's a lot of variation in how states regulate guns. And so it creates a lot of really interesting natural experiments that allow researchers to see what the effects of various policies are. So, you know, Yes, there. it does seem like the HHS secretary is interested in CDC doing more, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think let's not forget that there is research into gun violence that is happening and that I think is informing our po- policy there, debate. There is a lot of concern among researchers that, that it just that it hinders the research pipeline, that researchers, if they want to do this, are told that this is not a good thing for your career, that mm-hmm. there's not really government funding available, there's limited amount of private funding available, that you know maybe you'd like to go research something where you might actually be able to get funded for it. I just... You 
you know, as a reporter writing about this issue over the last few years, like I've spent time in this literature and talked to these researchers. And yes, the, the way the government invests in research is really important. I think it does send signals about what are attractive areas. It does help fund things that where it's harder to get other sources of funding. Absolutely. But I do think that we can have a public policy debate that is informed by research on this area now. And there's always more yeah. to know. But there are things out there and it, there's there's a lot of work that's being done. All right. Yeah, it's a very good point. <laughs> uh, or we're going to do our extra credits in a minute, but I want to go first this week because um, I think that the, the, my extra credit is something a whole panel should discuss. Uh, it was a story in the New York Times over the weekend. It's called As Some Got Free Healthcare, Gwen Got Squeezed, An Obamacare Dilemma by Abby Goodnow. Uh, this is the latest in a continuing saga about healthcare haves versus have-nots. Uh, I actually did my own story about this last fall. But as the individual market keeps getting squeezed and changed in different places as we just spent the first part of this discussing, um, the gap is growing between people who are getting government help and those who are paying their full freight. And those paying full freight are getting increasingly unhappy. And I guess that shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, are we? Well, I think that's it's been it's a, it was a very good story. It's also been reported ex- extensively. I mean, you look at what's been happening in Charlotte, for example, where you see people are, are you know, trying to go after the insurer for this because the, their costs have just gone up astronomically. And a lot of this was because of the cost sharing reduction subsidies being ended that made the divide greater. Um, so I, I definitely think that it's pinpointed an issue that's going on. and can, and But I also think that that's one of the issues that's driving what Republicans are trying to do right now. Um, they're seeing this and, and they're seeing this as as an impetus for why they need to do something before the elections. But, but, what's, happening, but what's happening is the premiums are going up because a lot of these actions are causing, like you mentioned, the yep. cost sharing reduction. Yep. That was blamed for, what, a 20 percent increase in premiums this year? And for and for folks who don't get a subsidy, they're the ones that are paying this. So there there's that political dynamic to this but but on the other hand what is the solution and 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 that's not clear either I think also it helps explain why there is so much public support for measures like work requirements and Medicaid Um, you know I think that people who get Medicaid now get Medicaid on the basis of having a low income and you know there's a lot of criticism of Medicaid as health insurance but generally it's really popular among people who have it you don't have to usually pay premiums if you do they're very low you don't usually have to pay very much cost sharing when you go to the doctor if you do it's very low and so for people who are earn a small income they get pretty good health insurance in states that have expanded Medicaid on the other hand people who earn a little bit more and get insurance either through their employer or through the individual market. They're facing, you know, often higher share of the premiums each year, high deductibles, more rules about which doctors and drugs are going to be covered. And I think that what the story really showed is that even though there's been an attempt to have a system that's sort of trying to make sure there's something for everyone, that people who are really like working and scrapping and feel that their coverage is getting worse and worse start to look at people lower down the income scale who have something that seems kind of richer and feel some resentment. I also think that this has been an issue and a challenge with the ACA since its inception when it was implemented. But I also think that the growing divide here is one of the things Democrats are going to seize on when they talk about um, uh, Medicaid buy-in programs. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And one of the issues is going to be, look, this divide is getting worse. We need to try and do something where we can have some more universal coverage. So you're going to see that come up and, and this issue will be talked about more. 
I think, you know, when, when the ACA started, the idea was that, there, you know, the very low-income people would have Medicaid. The next sort of level up would have the cost-sharing reductions, you know, the, so they get they get help with their not just their premiums, but their out-of-pocket costs. And then, you know, the people over 250% of poverty would get help with just their premiums. So, sort of that was, the idea was to sort of smooth it out so that, that, you know, the people who could pay, as you went up the income scale, if you could pay a little more, you would pay a little more. What's happened is that now we have these cliffs and that as you go up the income scale, you might have to pay a lot more. And I'm just, I'm wondering how much of that is an accident, how much of that is, was sort of engineered by opponents of the law. But regardless of how it happened, I, I think this, this story just sort of spotlights again the resentment. There was a wonderful piece that we talked about that Atul Gawande did last year. He went back to his hometown in Ohio. Same kind of thing. You know, the people who were working really, really hard and not getting help were very unhappy about the people who in some cases were working hard, but who were getting a ton of stuff. I think there's just this this problem of inequality among what people are getting. I think problem exists to some degree in almost any sort of means-based social welfare program, right? Because the idea is you want to give benefits to people who are poor, who don't earn enough to be able to buy their own food or be able to um, pay their own rent or whatever. But the natural result of this is as you start to earn more income, you get less benefit. And eventually, the, the program, the government determines you make enough money and then you don't get any help. And so you kind of have people on either side of those cliffs. And there's a lot of interesting research about, you know, how does that affect people's behaviors? Do they try to stay on one side or the other side? But the objective of these policies is to help people who really have low incomes to be able to take care of themselves. The difficulty is that people on the other side of the cliff who often aren't really are scrapping and, and working really hard in order to get their benefits sort of look further down and they say, well, it's not fair that someone who works less than me, who earns less than me, is getting something better than I'm getting. And, and the story points out that two of the most popular programs in this country, Medicare and Social Security, don't have that kind of a problem. They don't have this kind of a cliff thing. It's available to everybody who, who, who is eligible. So Although they, they did for a while. I will, I will point out, I worked on Capitol Hill in the early 1980s, and we had this problem called the Notch Babies. And if you're too young to remember this, you're, you're better off for it. It turned out that Social Security um, formula was overpaying. Uh, some people. So they tried to sort of, they, they tried to smooth it out and they smoothed it out over a number of years. But there were these notch babies. I can't, they were born, I think, between like 1915 and 1920. It might have been earlier than that, who were getting less than the people who were slightly older than they were because those people were being overpaid. <laughs> but mm-hmm. they were Abs- they were everywhere. It was like the biggest issue on Capitol Hill for, you know, for any member of Congress, Democrat and Republican, what to do about the notch babies. Um, and eventually they did sort of fix it. But my, my point is that even if it's a small group and even if they're wrong, um, the screaming is sometimes enough to, to cause uh, cause Congress to, to sit up and take notice. And I'm just wondering if at what point this issue of sort of the, the, the inequity about what people are getting in terms of health care um, is going to and what that might produce. In right. Congress. What, what's the yeah. solution? I mean, they could increase the subsidies, but I don't see that happening. Right. Well, you Go do see the, that. Uh, but that's the stabilization. Right. The yeah. stabilization plan. Mm-hmm. Um, Democrats, the, the one that that's being debated potentially as part of the omnibus, the Democrats very much want to see expanded tax credits. Right, I don't think the Republicans yeah, yeah. will go for it. But <laughs> I was going to say, what's, what are the chances of but that? They keep and saying, they're yeah. talking about reinsurance mm-hmm. as a stabilization mm-hmm. mechanism. So but I, I do, do think, think, think the they're looking at it. work requirements are also a response to this, right? There, yes. It's, a, it's yes. you know, this state leaders in a lot of these Republican-led states feel like 
if people who are receiving Medicaid benefits have to work and contribute and give something back to society in exchange for the benefits that they're getting, that that will make it more equitable and that will in some ways mitigate some of this resentment by people who are earning more. So, you know, you can sort of see solutions to this problem from both the left and the right. The right can make it a little harder to get these benefits if you're not really working. The left might want to increase the generosity of the programs for people who are not getting the very best kind of help. But remember, six out of 10 folks in Medicaid already do work. So I'm wondering how much of this is going to really pull more people into the workforce. Some of it will probably on the margins, but, but we'll see. I think Margot's point, though, is mm-hmm. that I'm not sure whether people care whether or not right. they work. They right. care it's less the, the requirement. Right. Right. There's yeah. a requirement yeah. there. Yeah. Sure. about optics, sure. about sort of right. just a sense right. of justice. Fairness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I have one update before we get to the rest of our extra credits. Um, last month, we offered up an extra credit story. Uh, it was an investigative piece from The Wall Street Journal about the nominee to lead the Indian Health Service and how he may have embellished his hospital experience on his resume. Well, as of yesterday, he's withdrawn his name from consideration for the post, according to those reporters. So journalism. Um, We are going now we're ready to wrap things up with the, the rest of our extra credits. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently. They think everyone else should read, too. Who wants to go first, Margot? Sure. So um, I wanted to talk about a story that uh, Jonathan Cohn published in the Huffington Post uh, called Liberal Establishment Suddenly Sounds Very Ambitious on Healthcare. And this is about a new sort of comprehensive proposal, as we were just saying, from the the left to try to figure out how do we uh, make the system kind of more universal and more fair and accessible to more people. So this is a very big kind of comprehensive proposal from the Center for American Progress, which, you know, I think you can think of them as being sort of like an establishment left organization. They have a lot of close ties to to Democratic leaders. They were very close to the Clinton campaign. And so two things about this, and and both of them, I think, uh, Jonathan really brings out well. One is that they're kind of, they're getting their hands dirty. They're getting into nuts and bolts about how do we do this. They have a detailed proposal. Uh, It is different than the single payer proposal from Senator Sanders uh, and others in Congress. This is uh, something more like a buy-in where people could get access to Medicare if they want to. And where some people would be automatically enrolled in Medicare if they didn't. And also it has like some price controls in the in the health insurance market that I'm sorry, in the healthcare market that's designed to lower the cost of care for everyone. So there's a lot of pieces in here. Uh, The other thing that I think is interesting is, you know, we talked last week about how Republicans are starting to pick away at some of the least popular parts of Obamacare. And I suggested that maybe that's because they have become more pessimistic about repealing the whole thing. This feels like almost the opposite of that. I think that the center left, the establishment left, had been very reluctant to bring forward any kind of proposals to change Obamacare in a substantial way to try to improve it or overhaul it because they just didn't want to concede that there was anything wrong with it. You know, they were very much in kind of defense mode. Like, we have to protect what we have. We have to talk about why it's good and strong. And I think there was even some anger at Sanders and other people on the left for bringing up these single-payer proposals and in some ways acknowledging that there were problems with the ACA when it was under attack. So I think one thing Jonathan's story does that is really interesting is it just highlights that This proposal sort of shows that the left is ready for the next debate. Democrats are getting ready for the next time that they are in control of the government, and they really are thinking about something relatively ambitious for the first time in a long time. Although I do think the Democrats are terrified of, you know, getting torn apart the way the Republicans have sort of torn themselves apart over repealing the ACA. The Democrats are worried about, you know, an intra-party civil war between sort of single payer and the things that would help the health care system that are not all the way to single payer. But I think that's 
part of what we're seeing happening, right? So a couple of months ago, we saw this kind of very pie-in-the-sky single-payer proposal that is a big departure from the way that our healthcare system works now. And it was sort of unanswered by anyone in the middle. There was sort of, you know, the, the far left was saying, let's do something more like what Canada has. And the center left was saying, let's just protect the Affordable Care Act. And so, you know, it's, it will be a number of years before Democrats really have enough control over the government, even in the most optimistic scenario. There's, it seems like now this debate has begun, right? You have Center for American Progress coming out with a more moderate proposal, a more incremental proposal. Presumably, there will be debate between those two groups, and there will be some tinkering around that. Um, I attended a conference a couple weeks ago that the Century Foundation hosted that where they were really bringing together people talking about, are there ways we can expand health coverage through expanding the Medicaid system? Are there ways that we can do uh, Medicare expansions? Are there uh, kind of incremental tinkers on the Affordable Care Act that are important? So I think there are a lot of people on the center left now who are trying to think about how do we bridge the divide and develop something that could be politically palatable, that could be broadly acceptable to their caucus, and that at a technical level could work if enacted. I don't, I don't know if they're going to get yeah, there, but right. they're ha- I think it's interesting yeah. that they're having but this. the debate is yeah. And I think yeah. it'll be sort of a litmus test for the Democratic candidates, too. I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, where do they stand on this is going to be a question. Yeah, we certainly saw every, every potential 2020 candidate uh, co-sponsor that single-payer bill. Julie, what's your story? Well, we already talked a little bit about this, but it's an Idaho story. And this is by Dylan Scott uh, in Vox. And the headline is, Idaho's brazen plan to unravel Obamacare explained. <laughs> and he talks a lot about what you know some of the things we were talking about earlier. But he also notes that you know, a lot of the concern about what Idaho's doing is if the state can do this, if they can ignore parts of federal law, can they ignore parts of other federal laws? And where will this lead, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, you know, this is not necessarily unprecedented. He notes that... Um, the federal government could step in, but in the past they haven't always. So he mentions during the Obama administration when when um, a lot of states were legalizing marijuana, the Obama administration did not step in to do anything. So he kind of likens it to that. And, you know, maybe we're going to see this happening more and more around Actually, different the Trump topics. the administration hasn't stepped in either. That's not yet. They have well, not. I, so I, you know. I think there's a really important difference between something that amounts to prosecutorial discretion and something that amounts to enforcement of these existing regulatory rules. And I think the reason is, is because people will be able to sue on, on the Idaho plan. So maybe there won't be a lawsuit that can stop it from going into effect. But certainly, People who remain in the individual market, if their premiums go up as a result, they, I think, will have grounds to sue the state or the plan for violating the Affordable Care Act. And I also think people who may hit some of these caps in the plans, we didn't talk about mm-hmm. this, but they, mm-hmm. the they Freedom have, Plans right, would right. have annual right. limits on mm-hmm. how much uh, medical expenditure Which the, the plan doesn't covered. allow. <laughs> you know, I think if you are someone who buys one of these plans and you end up getting really sick and you hit the cap, you know, that person may be likely to sue too. And, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know exactly how these lawsuits are going to go, but I think the courts will have some role in potentially enforcing the ACA rules in a way that when it comes to the prosecution of criminal laws, if no one brings the case to court, then there is no ability for the judicial system to get involved and say, oh, well, you really should have been enforcing these marijuana laws. Stephanie. Um, my story is uh, one that ran in the Washington Post, and I'm going to butcher the name. It was by Shafali Luthra, <laughs> and it was by Kaiser Health News. And it was really an interesting trend story that looked at um, uh, hospitals now that are basically um, having people sign bank loans to pay for their medical expenses, even when they are, for example, in the emergency room. And this is indicative of the fact that people are paying much more of their health care costs. I mean, that's what you see happening. There's a bigger financial burden. But to see 
these bank loans being offered to people who are in a very vulnerable position and may not quite understand what financially is at risk, what the rates are, um, is, I think, something really to be watched and concerning, frankly, and from a consumer protection point of view. So this was really a great story in that it identified something that people are not paying attention to. um, And it kind of harks back to, do you remember the debt collection practices that we saw being scrutinized in Minnesota? Um, I don't know what will come of this, if this will lead to some of that kind of scrutiny, but it was really a, a good and provocative story. It's, you know, as healthcare gets more expensive, we're, we're seeing things like this. Well, that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Julie underscore Appleby. At Steph Armor One. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.